Well, my desire here is to finish up uh, the fifth chapter of the confession on uh, God's providence. And we're dealing with the topic of election, reprobation, and an overall just general understanding of, of God's sovereignty, God bringing about his, his good purpose. And we're dealing with, we will be dealing with some difficult passages within this um, within this study. Um, some that have caused people to stumble, some that have caused people to struggle, some that have caused people to uh, begin to say things about God that are inconsistent with who, who God is. And so we're going to see these things rightly. We're going to be using some ideas that we've talked about previously, the idea of, of first causes and, and second causes, understanding that God is bringing about what he has decreed. We saw that in the third chapter. He has, he has, God has ordained whatsoever shall come to pass. He is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign even over the sinful actions of men. He's using even the sinful actions of men to bring about his good purpose to accomplish his will. We saw that in the life of Joseph. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They had one intention. The Lord had another purpose in Joseph going to to, uh, to Egypt as a slave. And the Lord ended up saving his brothers, using the sinful actions of his brothers to save his brothers from starvation. We saw that in the life of Jesus, where the Lord had ordained Herod, Pontius Pilate, and others to act in these ways. He had decreed them to act in these ways, but he participated not in their sin. He did not make them act as they did. They, they acted freely. They acted according to their own sinful desires. So the Lord is sovereign over all of these areas, but the Lord is not participating in man's sin. Man is fully responsible for what he does. But we have this trust, as we have already seen, that the Lord uses all these things for our good, even difficulty, pain, the sinful actions of others. The Lord uses even those for in the lives of his children for their good. And are we able to see this from the side of glory? Are we able to discern all the ways in which this is working itself out? Well, we can confess no. For the most part, we don't. Many times we're sitting there like Job saying, why is this happening? The Lord doesn't give us an answer. The Lord never gave Job an answer. But we can trust God because we know who he is. We know that he loves us. He's shown his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. So we're going to walk through these last few paragraphs of chapter 5 in the confession. A lot of these um, doctrines, topics, concepts, they've already been dealt with uh, here in chapter 3 or here in chapter 5 on the decree of God or in God's providence, but they're using, uh, they're kind of dealing now with um, some arguments people may have or the framers are thinking about concerns that people may have and dealing with specific passages. So I'm gonna spend some time walking through the paragraphs and then dealing with some of the, the passages that they cite to help us to understand uh, what we have. So let's start with Paragraph four, and also if you want to, this one in particular might be helpful. I should have said this earlier, but the, in the hymnals, in the back of the hymnal, you have a copy of the confession. So that might be helpful for you to follow along as we're walking through this, because I'm going to be um, making, um, I'm going to be emphasizing certain aspects of it. So if you're following along, that might be helpful for you. You can also find a copy of it uh, on the internet. You can find a copy of it on our church website. 
Um, so this is chapter four. Uh, this is chapter five, paragraph four of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, the confession the church holds to. It says this, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extends itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men. And that not by bare permission, but also he most wisely and powerfully binds and otherwise orders and governs in manifold dispensation to his holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceeds only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or the approver of sin. And so that's the important, the two aspects we have there, the tension that is there, that God is sovereign over all things, and yet God is not the author of sin. God is not participating in the sin of man. And we understood that through, as I said before, first and second causes. God has ordained whatsoever shall come to pass. God ordained that Joseph would go to Egypt, all right? And the means that the Lord used to send Joseph to Egypt was Joseph's brothers uh, having jealousy toward Joseph and then selling him into slavery, which sent him to Egypt. But you see in the end of Genesis, Joseph saying to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So we see a picture there of God ordaining this and this coming about, but the Lord is not participating in their sin. The Lord's not making them do that sin. The Lord didn't force them to do what they are, what they are doing. Um, let's look at a few of the lines from this. I actually, not sure what happened here, but my... My display change, so let me make a, a quick change to that. Um, okay. Sorry, otherwise I can't see the next slide and I'm just guessing whatever slide is next. And this is not one that I want to be guessing on. Um, so let's look at this line from the, the fourth paragraph of chapter five. And that not by bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully binds and otherwise orders and governs. Let's look at a few passages there. Second Samuel 24 and 1. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and number Israel and Judah. So we have this time where David is not trusting God, and rather he is uh, he's having a census rather than trusting the word of God. And he's not trusting God. And we see another way of looking at this in 1 Chronicles 21, 1 and 2. These are actually um, some places where people say, oh, this is a contradiction in the Bible. The Bible contradicts itself. The authors weren't saying the same thing. Um, 1 Chronicles 21, 1 and 2. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. And so we have a little more information here, okay? So God has ordained whatsoever shall come to pass. The, the author of 2 Samuel is writing from that perspective that God is doing this, but the way in which God brought this about was not, God wasn't making David do what he did, but rather um, his heart was being inclined to the sinfulness that was within his heart. And Satan was used to tempt uh, David in this way, to incite David 
in this way. So the first cause that we'd see there was God has ordained whatsoever shall come to pass. But the means that was used there was God allowing Satan to do what he did. Martin Luther says it this way, even Satan is God's Satan. If you want another picture of this, you can look at the beginning of the book of Job, where you have Satan coming to the Lord and asking permission if he can do certain things. And he was allowed to do only what the Lord allowed him to do. That was it. And so the Lord is giving permission to these things, but more than that, the Lord is sovereignly working his purpose even in these activities. And you may say, well, why? We don't, we don't, get, we don't get an answer to that question other than for the glory of God. God has a purpose in what it is that he does. We'll, we'll unpack this a little further because this why can get us into some problems if we push it too far. Continuing, in the manifold dispensation of his holy ends. Uh, we see a, a time here in Isaiah chapter 10, and it says six and seven, against the godless nation I send him, against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, to tread them down like a mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off the nations, but a few. So the Lord is sending someone to go and to judge Israel for their actions and for their behaviors. Um, and then you see this, just a few verses down. Verses 12 and 13 in Isaiah 10. When the Lord had, has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So he sends this people to go and to judge the people of Israel, to go and to deal with them for their disobedience. And then God ends up judging the one that he sent to judge Israel for his own sinfulness. He had a dual purpose in what happened here. And there was a sinfulness within the heart of the Assyrian king and how it is that he behaved. The Lord is using even the sinful actions of this sinful king to judge the people there in Isaiah 10. Let's continue further in paragraph 4. It says, Yet so as the sinfulness of their acts proceeds only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Psalm 1-6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked shall, shall perish. He is using these things for his good purpose. First uh, John 2, 16, that should say 16. Um, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Um, these, all come from, these all come from Satan. Uh, James 1-13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So you're never reading any of these passages and saying, God's making this person do this. God's making Pharaoh do this sinful action. No, no, we'll see this as we continue through here. God is, is, God is restraining his grace. He is restraining his mercy, okay? So that people end up acting in ways that are the, the, the fullness of what's in their heart, their, 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 their ultimate desire. I mean, how many, how many of us have thought things and not said them? How many of us have thought things and not done them? Well, since we're all sitting in this room and we're not locked up somewhere, most likely we haven't all done things that we've thought. We've all thought of certain things that we've not followed through on. 
That's a, that's a glimpse into your heart. It's so easy for us to say, well, yeah, nobody's perfect. Do we all think this or that? No, that, that's a glimpse into your heart. That, that is, you, you are being restrained in some way not to follow through with the desire that you had at that moment. Maybe it comes, how could I even think that? That's terrible. Or why would I do that? Or you even think of the consequences that you might, might experience. I remember a few years ago, um, and it was after Hurricane Katrina, which I think would have been Hurricane Rita, and there was, um, Houston was like two months old at this time, so I'll give you the age of that, like 18 years ago. And um, we had just lost everything in the first hurricane, and Katrina came here, and now there's another hurricane coming for Houston, and people were terrified. People were losing their minds out of fear just there ended, it was, they, there's so many people tried to evacuate the city at one point that they ran out of gas on I-45 and I-10 trying to evacuate. Just people, just for miles. And I remember trying to evacuate the city and trying to find gas, and I remember at a gas station, and I saw just the utter terror on people's minds. Um, almost, get it, almost got into a very, very serious situation that I won't go into here. Had my mother with me, and had, we're trying to get gas in both cars, and we're maneuvering through all of that. And I just saw the fear on people's in their eyes and their minds, and just the those normal comforts, security that we have within society and culture, were just were, had had waned, weren't there. And, and what was really in people's hearts was was displaying itself. The other disregard for the safety of others, the other disregard and, and kindness for other people, or even letting someone go ahead of you, or their willingness to um, go headlong into violence over just a, a mere misunderstanding. And, and I saw that and I thought about this, this reality that, that this is what's really in people's hearts. This is what things are really like. You can see what's in the heart of a culture after about three days without food. You're gonna see where people's minds and their hearts really are. And so what you have during these times where God is hardening someone's heart, or you, you have um, someone walking headlong in, into their sin, you have the Lord um, not granting them grace at that time. You have a, a restraining of these things in some way, which is what you had with Pharaoh, did you not? I mean, anyone with any sense would have said, okay, the water has parted, they're walking through the water, I think I'll just turn around with my troops at this point. That, that would be the, the right, that would be the wise thing to do. No, he went headlong right into him. That's what was in his heart. He was in opposition to God. He was in opposition to the will of God. And he ran and did what was absolutely insane. And he took the greatest army in the world at that time and drowned them in the middle of the Red Sea. We'll, we'll, we'll circle back on this a little bit, but as we walk through, I want to say this because I know as I'm saying some of these things, you may be a little uncomfortable with some of the things that I'm saying. But these are, these are things that are in Scripture, and we must understand all of Scripture together. Paragraph 5 in chapter 5 of the Confession says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a reason his own children to manifold temptations and corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close, constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful 
against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and for their good. Um, 2 Chronicles 32, 25 and 26 is one of the passages they used to support it. But Hezekiah did not return, did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore the wrath of God came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride in his heart, both he and his inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of God did not come upon him in the days of, of Hezekiah. And you have the, the consequences of Hezekiah's actions manifesting themselves uh, later on. Um, let's look at 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, a very famous passage that we have in the New Testament of Paul dealing with uh, a real struggle, a, a real difficulty in his life and, and his ministry in praying that the Lord would remove it. The Lord does not. The Lord sovereignly keeps it there. The Lord keeps this difficulty and pain in his life. Uh, some people try to speculate as to what this is. I don't think that's wise. But the reality is, whatever it is, it was difficult. It was painful. It seems to be physical. Um, second, second Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. I'm, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Let me say something real quick. Third heaven, um, if you could understand that, is, is, a, is not, there's some charismatics that have just run wild with this term third heaven. Okay, so if you look at the sky, that's the first heaven. Outer space, moon, sun, stars, that's the second heaven. Third heaven, that's where God is. That's how you understand third heaven. Just wanted to make a quick note in case you're distracted by that. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on myself, I will not boast, except in my weakness. Though, it should, though I should wish to boast, I would be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think me more than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me, and so you have the Lord giving this revelation to Paul, all right, and then on account of giving him this revelation, the Lord is also going to humble him. And that's what Paul says. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Very powerful passage, an excellent passage to consider even in times of suffering, to remember that the Apostle Paul was not walking about like a word of faith teacher you know, walking about with, with the, the greatest of luxuries and the greatest of ease. He wasn't walking about declaring that if you would only believe, then you would be healed. He wasn't healed. He pleaded with the Lord to, to heal him. The Lord did not heal him. Romans 8, um, 28 through 30, Paul, Paul says this, And we know that those who love God 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this is a, a picture and a reminder of what God is doing. All things in your life, dear Christian, are for your good. God is going to use them for your ultimate good. And, it, and he is working this through, um, and even in your sanctification, to conform you to Christ, to conform you to the image of his son. I mean, why? What, what would you expect? You are following Christ. Christ died upon the cross. Christ suffered. Christ did not live a life of perfect ease. He walked through difficulty. And you can ask why, but the Lord may not give you that information. This side of glory, you may not have the information as to why this particular hardship is happening, this particular loss is occurring in the way in which it does. And even here, you can ask the question. I'm talking about the Lord restraining grace. Why, why does he restrain grace? Why does the Lord withhold good things from us? Why does the Lord allow us to fall into sin and difficulty? Why does the Lord use this to display weaknesses or idols within our heart? Well, that's a good question you can ask, but you're not going to have a full answer to the side of glory because you can ask it even a bigger question than that. Why do we exist in this intermediary state? Why? Why? Why is it that when you come to faith in Christ that you're not immediately beamed up to heaven and that's it? Okay, there you go. Eternity starts for you now. Well, no, eternity starts for you now as you walk and struggle in this life. That's where eternity is starting. Eternity is starting now. What you do in life as a Christian now has eternal significance. It has eternal uh, value. I mean, why didn't he just, why didn't, Genesis 3.15, Adam falls, and the Lord says in Genesis 3.15, a child of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Why didn't he just do that then? Just boom, crush. Okay, it's all taken care of. Nobody needs to die. Nobody needs to suffer. Nobody needs to struggle. Nobody needs to get hurt. Well, the first reason we could say is that wasn't God's goal. God's goal in redeeming this world, redeeming his people, wasn't that you would not go through any difficulty, pain, suffering, or death. It was his intention that you would go through those things. You don't sell a lot of books with that mentality, but it's, it's truth. It's truth. You're not going to sell a lot of books with that, but that's, but that's what will be there for you and will help you when you experience these difficulties. Because all of the guys out there that are peddling health and wealth or peddling that life is going to be easy, they all die, they all struggle, they all have problems, they have difficulties in their families, all of them do. What they're teaching isn't consistent with reality. It's not consistent with the passage I just read about Paul, where, where he's praying that this messenger of Satan would be removed. Why didn't he just claim it? Why didn't he just bind Satan? It's that easy, right? Churches get together, I'm just going to bind Satan. Bodhi was talking once and he was like, did you let the other churches know you bound him? You got him for this week. Maybe, maybe y'all can get him next week. Huh? Or are you binding him and unbinding him? How is that working exactly? Huh? I mean, could the Lord not have sent the Redeemer immediately? 
Could the promised seed not have come immediately? Right then, boom, there he is. Is that not what Eve thought? I think she did. I think she did. You read the Hebrew, she says, look, I have given birth to the man or a man. This is the one. This is going to be it. She went through the difficulty of childbirth, of carrying the child. She was struggling. Adam was working by the sweat of his brow. They are dealing with the difficulty and the thorns and the thistles of the world. She says, this is it. This is going to be the one. He's going to make everything right. And no, he wasn't it. No, no, he ended up killing his brother. He was not the promised one, but the Lord still sent Seth. And the promise continued that, that one would come forward. That was just the Lord's plan. He could have done it in that way, but he could not have accomplished what it, it is that he is choosing to accomplish through the means in which he is doing things. Therefore, he didn't do it that way. Our comfort and our ease weren't on the top of his list, at least not in this life. The life to come, we will have that. God chose to work these things incrementally partially, gradually, gradually bringing these things in. Um, and so we need to be mindful of this. This is a quick application, mean, mindful of our, our complaining about providence. It's, you could ask the question why, you can suffer, you can struggle, but an ongoing regular just complaining about providence and how things are. And this, we get into this in politics as though the next person we elect is gonna be our Messiah, as though the next person we elect is, is going to make all things right and bring all things to pass. Praise God when you, you get a better candidate than others, but our hope is not there. We must not be those that are continually ranting and raving about what's going on in this thing and that thing, or if only the liberals weren't doing this, or if only this person wasn't doing that. It's not a Christian mindset. That's talk radio, that's, that's much of what you see on a lot of social media, you see that a lot on a medium like Twitter. Um, but consider, consider the story we talked about previously. All right, we've talked about this, I think, in the last two lessons on this topic. And that is Paul, and he was on the ship, and the Lord told Paul that he would save everyone on the ship. And Paul told everyone that they would be saved, and then he went and told them what they had to do, and if they didn't do it, they would die. So we, again, we see there God decreeing he would save everyone on the ship, but then that's the first cause. The second cause is that he used the people doing certain things and not sending people off, but rather they had to stay on the ship and they had to work, and that was the means God used to save them. Um, but sometimes providence seems to go against what God's province promised. Sometimes things don't look like they're working out for your good. Sometimes things uh, just don't make sense. I mean, think of the story of Paul on that ship. He was promised that they would be saved. God promised they would be saved. But the ship was wrecked. Everything was destroyed. Imagine all of this. He's he has this promise that he is going to be saved and all the people are going to be saved and yet everything looks like it's going contrary to that. They're in a giant storm. Things are going terrible. They're throwing off um, items of cargo that they had but not, not getting rid of the people and it looks like they're in dire straits. They are not going to live from the way that it's looking. So much, the whole ship breaks up. It's all broken up. Like, this is the salvation that we're going to, this is the salvation that you promised us. 
But yet, the broken pieces of the ship were what the people grabbed onto, whereby they could float to the shore and be, and be saved. Therefore, God determined that he would save them, and he would save them by the men working, working on the ship to control the ship in such a way that it would end up crashing, but they would not die, and then the broken pieces from the ship would be used whereby they could be saved. Behold God's plan. These, these stories are helpful, I think. These stories are helpful because they don't help you to know why this particular thing is happening in your life right now. They don't give you that answer, but what they do give you is a picture of God's providence and God's promise and how it has worked itself out. If you were one of the apostles and you had this promise that the Lord was going to bring his kingdom down, the kingdom of God was going to come, and certainly you would imagine that has something to do with the Romans not ruling over the people of God and, and, the, and, the, and the people having a king that's ruling for them, nobody was imagining that Christ was going to go upon the cross and die. Everyone was shocked by that. They could go back and see these pictures and these prophecies within the scriptures in the Old Testament. They can go back and think about things Jesus said in his ministry. You see that communicated in the Gospels. That's communicated even by Jesus later on after his resurrection. But these are things that were difficult at the time that they would not have imagined. But we can look at these stories and kind of get a glimpse. And we, and we can see this is how God's worked before. I wouldn't have understood it if I was on that ship. I wouldn't have understood it if I was an apostle and I was standing there by the cross. I wouldn't have understood it if I was, if I was Mary standing there and this is my child. And we had all these prophecies. Maybe Mary understood more than others. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but... Perhaps, I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but maybe some people understood what was going on. But overwhelmingly, that's not what anyone was expecting, that he was going to get arrested, beaten, and die. Um, let's look at Thomas Watson. He's one of my favorite Puritans. Thomas Watson says this. He says, God is to be trusted when his providences seem to run contrary to his promises. God promised David to give him a crown, to make him a king, but providence turns contrary to his promise. David was pursued by Saul, was in danger of his life. But all this while, it was David's duty to trust God. The Lord does oftentimes, by cross providence, bring to pass his promise. God promised Paul the lives of all that were with him on the ship. But, but now the providence of God seems to run quite contrary to his promise. The winds blow, the ship splits and breaks in pieces, and thus God fulfilled his promise upon the broken pieces of the ship. They all come safe to shore. Trust God when providences seem to run quite contrary to promises. Let's continue. Paragraph 6. Um, I, I do want to finish this and, and move on to the next chapter next time. So. Uh, paragraph six, as for those wicked and ungodly men whom God, as righteous judge, um, for former sin doth blind and harden, for them he not only withholds his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts that they had and exposes them to such objects of the corruption, makes, it makes occasion for sin, and withal gives them over to their own lust, temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves unto those means which God uses for softening others. I was in school, and I remember having had a more of a moderate uh, church history uh, professor, uh, and he, he made this statement that 
revivals always come about during social difficulty or social problems. He says, you look at the revivals of the world, and, and he used a few examples. Really, he just used the first and second great awakening. He didn't go beyond that in his study. And the reality is that's, that's not at all what is true. Um, difficulties come about in cultures at certain times, and it results in a revival. Difficulties come about at other times, and it results in anarchy. You have anarchy that results in the French Revolution. It was not grounded um, in Christian principles in understanding. Um, you have revolutions that happen at other time, and they have Christian principles to fall back on or to be supported with. And you have, um, uh, you know, Christianity that, that kind of flows out out of that in some way. And so, my point in saying this is that. The same circumstance could be used in one person to drive them to despair and rebellion against God, and that same circumstance could be used in the life of someone else to lead them to greater trust in the Lord. Mere circumstances do not explain um, what's happening to someone, someone spiritually. Um, people's descent in sin is a consequence of their rebellion against God. And God will remove restraining grace, remove certain comforts, such that people will walk headlong into their sin. Um, right there, as for the wicked and the ungodly men, whom God, as the righteous judge for former sins, did blind and harden. We see that Romans 1, beginning in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so we see this descent into depravity, this, this debased mind that ignores God, dishonors God, and God gives that person over. Romans 1.28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And it continues to go down. You, you deny God, you turn away from the one who has given you life, um, the one for whom you exist to glorify, and it will lead to greater and greater um, depravity and issues within your life. Um, continuing there in, chapter, uh, in paragraph six, uh, it says, from him, he not only withholds his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon their hearts. You see Moses walking through a history here. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but this, this, he's walking through the history here of all the things that God has done for them in Egypt in saving them and all the wonders that have been done outside of there. And then in verse four, you see him say this. He says, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I mean, certainly all the miracles that were done should have just made everyone a believer, but it didn't take long after the uh, Israelites left Egypt, that the Egypt within the Israelites began to display itself. And it displayed itself not long. Moses was up on the mountain and they began to descend into Egyptian worship. They, they called this God Yahweh. They called this God the God that saved them, but they worshiped him in a way in which they worshiped the gods in Egypt. 
um, continuing, but sometimes he also withdraws gifts that they had. Matthew 13, 12, for the one who has, more will be given, and he uh, will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Continuing, it says, and exposes them to such objects of their corruption and makes occasion for, for sin. There's a couple examples that we have here. Uh, Deuteronomy 2 and verse 30, but Shihon, the king of Hezbon, would not let us pass him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he did this day. God was involved in the hardening of his heart. God was involved in removing the normal things that would have restrained him, the wisdom that would have said, I should not go forward here. I'm going to be destroyed. The Lord allowed him to continue and walk headlong in his disobedience. Isaiah 6 and verse 10 uh, make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, the, their, the blind, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. This is God's judgment falling upon someone. People tell themselves, you know what, I'll just wait till, the, till I'm just going to live it up while I'm young, and then before I die, I'm going to turn and to trust, trust in Jesus and believe upon him. Uh, you think God's, God's stupid. Do you think God doesn't know what you're doing there? It is a judgment of God that you would continue on in your state in such a way and deny him. Pharaoh saw all that he saw. Okay, the Israelites walked out of there not believing. Many of them walked out of there not believing. Pharaoh did not believe all the things that were, that were done. That's what was within his heart. Continuing, and with all gives them over to their own lust, temptations of the world, and the power of Satan. Um, Psalm 81, 11 and 12, they use this verse to support it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. They refused to walk in obedience. They refused to submit themselves to him. So he let them go forward with their own desires, with what was in their hearts. What was ultimately there began to display itself. Second Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11, the coming of the lawless one is by, this, by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and all the wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Again, God's sending this, but God is, it's a restraining. He's restraining his grace at this time. And people are walking forward in this delusion in what they desire. What's in their heart is being displayed. Continuing, whereby it came to pass that they hardened themselves under those means which God uses for the softening of others. Exodus 8, 14 and 15. And they gathered them in heaps and the land stank. And Pharaoh saw that, that there was respite, but he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. He continued to do this over and over and over. Um, let's go on to paragraph seven um, of the confession. Um, this is the last paragraph. As the providence of God does in general reach all creatures, so after a more special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes of all things to the good thereof. So. We can see this and we can, we can trust, trust in God. We can trust in God knowing that what he is doing is for our good. It's for the good of the church. It's, it's for the purpose of sanctifying his people. Um, you can just not only know that it's good, you can know what God's providence is what is best. 
That may be hard to swallow. That may be hard to really ponder. Um, but he has decreed this. What he has decreed is, is best. It was best that Christ came in the way that he did, that Christ died and suffered upon the cross. That's what God ordained would happen. That's, that's your hope. I hope that's your hope, dear friend. God's providence is what is, what is best. It's what is, it's what is good. It's what is best. John Flavel says this, we find a multitude of providences so timed to a minute that had they occurred just a little sooner or a little later, um, they had mattered little in comparison with what now they do. Certainly it cannot be by chance, but counsel that so exactly works in time. Contingencies keep to no rules. The angel calls to Abraham and shows him another sacrifice when his hand was giving the fatal stroke to Isaac, Genesis 10, uh, Genesis 22, 10 and 11. A well of water is shown to Hagar when she had just left a child and as not able to see death. Um, Rabshakeh meets with the, the blasting providence. Here's a rumor that frustrated his designs just when he was ready to make an assault on, on Jerusalem. We must walk away from this with a biblical mindset. We must be biblical in our understanding. Some people say, look, you just need to be optimistic. No, you, you need to be biblical, okay? You don't, you don't need to... Uh, you don't need to be one that is just, okay, nothing's ever going to work out well. You don't need to be one that says everything's always going to work out well. You don't need to be one that says nothing's ever going to change. It's always going to be this way. The fact is you don't really know. You don't know if things are going to work out well in a temporal sense here on earth. You know ultimately things will work out well and God's purpose is to use even these things that aren't working out well here for your good to accomplish his good purpose. But we must not fall into these to be really optimistic or to be really pessimistic or to be, um, we call it uniformitarianism, nothing is ever going to change, it's always going to be exactly how it is. The reality is you, you don't know. In, in, a, in a perusing through scripture, I think as we have here and as you will see as you continue to read scripture, demonstrates that, that none of these are a healthy mindset. That, that from an eschatological sense, there is optimism. Things are always going to work out well. But in a temporal sense, where you are here and now, okay, our hope is it not in our health, our wealth, um, our power, none of those things. And, and we weren't promised those things. We weren't promised those things. We weren't promised we'd always be healthy. Uh, we weren't promised that we'd never die. We weren't promised that we'd be wealthy in this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Who said that? That was Job. Job said that. Job went through quite a roller coaster. Um, I think a closing, I would like to walk through a hymn that we've sung many times, Whatever God Ordains is Right. I'm going to read this, and you can just kind of meditate on it while I'm reading it. I'll read through all four verses. Whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still, whatever he doth, and forever where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road, he holds me, and I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content with what he hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right. Though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true each morn anew. Sweet comfort, yet 
shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whatever God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow need or death be mine, yet am I not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. So to him I leave it all. And that's what we must walk away with our understanding of providence, that he is accomplishing his good purpose. We can trust in him. We can trust in him regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what we see around us, knowing that his way is best. And ultimately, he will make all things right. He will make all things new. Let's pray.